0: Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about and pivot to the future. On today's show, we focus on who's telling our stories. We are joined by CNN's Brooke Baldwin to speak about women and the media and so much more. Brooke Baldwin is a renowned CNN anchor and author of a new book, Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. It's released April 6th. Huddle explores the phenomenon of huddling when women lean on each other in politics, in Hollywood, activism, the arts, sports, and everyday friendships to provide each other support, empowerment, inspiration, and strength to solve problems or enact meaningful change. As you all know, Brooke Baldwin is a veteran journalist and Peabody Award finalist who has served as an anchor at CNN in its newsroom for more than a decade. She played a major role in anchoring coverage of the Obama and Trump administrations and is also reported on stories from Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. She has covered gun violence, including the tragedies at Sandy Hook and too many other places to mention, and we talk about that in this interview. As the creator and host of CNN's digital series, American Woman, she has dedicated the latest chapter of her career to shining a light on trailblazing women in politics and culture. And the book Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power, her first book, is a must read. So I want to welcome Brooke Baldwin to our show and thank her for joining us. Brooke, in February, you announced that you're leaving CNN after 13 years. You Mm. began, my goodness, (laughs) you began working at CNN as a freelancer in 2008 during the Great Recession. You told Mm -hmm. a powerful story about how you scribbled your name on a post-it note and put it outside a temporary office in hopes of one day becoming a full time CNN correspondent. Mm -hmm. And you fulfilled and exceeded that dream hosting your own two hour show in the afternoon by the age of 31. Mm -hmm. You've had quite the career at CNN. What motivated your departure after a Mm -hmm. really successful 13 years?
1: I wish I had held on to that post it by the way I will never forget doing that. Um, gosh, why am I leaving my family and my home? It's a great question. I actually think the, the 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 biggest part of the answer is because of this book and because of these trailblazing women who I have been who I've had the privilege of interviewing kind of like when you finish this journey um, of being holding space with women like Gloria Steinem and Stacey Abrams and Megan Rapinoe and indigenous women fighting, you know, for the planet or the, the women co-founders of black lives matter. You just sort of have like, I'm from the South. So I would say you sort of have a come to Jesus with yourself and my come to Jesus involved realizing in a painful way, but also in a blessing sort of way that I could not hold space with these women and be the bravest version of myself. And while my entire time at CNN has been extraordinary on a number of levels, and I do have a dream job as evidenced by the post-it, I know that I need to move on for me. And whatever it is that I end up doing, there is no way I will be able to do it had I not had these this precious time here you know, sharing these experiences with people all around the world. And so that's the real answer. And I don't totally know what I'm doing next. That's also the very real answer, but I know that I have to be brave.
0: So I want to unpack that in two ways. So the first is some level setting because being a woman in journalism, in TV journalism is still doing some pioneering, even in 2021. (laughs) And so could you help our listeners understand that a little bit just in terms of women and leadership, women being in front of and behind the scenes in journalism? What more is there left to do? I think probably a lot. (laughs)
1: let 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 me lift the curtain a little bit. And again, this is only my experience here at CNN. But, you know, in my so I've, I've been anchoring for 10 plus years, the majority of that time, two hours in the afternoon. And in that time, um, you know, the, the, the most influential anchors on our network, the highest paid are men. Uh, my bosses, my executives are men. The, the person who oversees CNN dayside is a man and my executive producer for 10 years is a man. So I have been surrounded by a lot of men. And I do think it is changing. Um, I know it is changing just by looking at some of the faces that are popping up more and more on our channel and on other channels. But that is just, and even going back to my early 20s, you know, I mean, the majority of my time spent as a cub reporter on into my 30s was spent with majority male photographers running around shooting stories at whatever city I was living in at the time and yes there would be certainly women in the newsroom but oftentimes especially early on they were women with very sharp elbows and so i i was surrounded by a lot of dudes
0: yeah and so then that what does that mean in terms of the stories that get to be lifted out about women i mean they're framed you know when you, when you have the the camera people the producers the, the, all the people around you who are men what does that mean in yeah. terms of women's stories coming out well <sighs> That's a great question.
1: I mean, I think that I know I personally fight for women's stories. I did a whole series to see the poster over my left shoulder, American woman. But, you know, the reason I have that in my office isn't because, woo, I did a series on women. It's actually because I got told no a lot and I still managed to do it. And uh, we have a woman who is in charge of CNN Digital, CNN.com. We have now a woman um, who is in charge of most of dom- domestic news gatherings. So like little by little, by having women in places of power, and I would argue behind the scenes, not just in front, but behind the scenes, you know, when w- w- that is how you then have stories that reflect who they are. And not only white women, you know, we talk about intersectional, like being intersectional. There is no way we will have progress if a bunch of white women are winning. Right. There's no way. No. You're so right. it's 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 brown women, black women, Asian women. It's across the board. It's it's we have to see them reflected in our stories. And I it's getting better. But we still have a bit of a ways to go i think
0: you know i will say that on the day that you announced that you would be leaving you know i think a kind of whelp was heard Ugh. around the country and around the world and <laughs> because you really do embody and put forward that uh quality of Sharp news delivery uh, at the same time, matched by a graciousness and earnestness, all of that. And so, men and women mm. across the country and the world took notice on that day. I mm. certainly know that I did, and I followed it on Twitter with so many people saying, Oh, no, Brooke can't go. She can't mm. leave. <laughs> but, you know, as a, as a kind of level two of um, kind of level setting, I wonder, and none of this is personalized, but I think it matters to hear about, well, what is that like then when you're the only woman or one of only a few women doing mm-hmm. what you love? How easy is, how easy is it? And as you said, you had to fight for, you know, the poster, you know, what, what in, what's embodied behind the poster uh, in back of you? So the question
1: is just, what was it like fighting for it or?
0: Yeah. Or just fighting for it, or just as a general matter, being the only woman in the room oftentimes.
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: Um, I want more women in the room. And I
1: think of someone, you know, the person that's coming to my mind and this is the, someone like this gives me hope. Abby Phillip at CNN, Uh younger black woman, her background is in, you know, um, Journalism, newspaper, came to CNN. I think she was initially a commentator, and she's just extraordinary. And she was one of the people that day. I mean, I couldn't believe, I, I don't know. I, I realized I touched a few people in my 10 years, but my goodness, I was overwhelmed. I'm not comfortable being the center of attention as a journalist. I was overwhelmed by the response when I, when I mentioned I was leaving. And Abby was one of those, one of many women at CNN who instantly reached out to me. And I think she whelped a little bit too. And I'll never forget her text. She said, Brooke, you're the heart of CNN. And I said, Abby, I am passing that along to you, my dear. And I said, uh, it is a privilege. Carry it." Dearly, and I said to her, "Make sure that as you your star continues to rise and your platform and your power grows, never forget to turn around and make sure you keep the door open for the next Abby Phillip." And oh, I get goosebumps even thinking about that. But you know, I I am hopeful in our channel and in journalism in general because more and more women like Abby. given a voice.
0: Well, in announcing uh, your exit, you said the next chapter of your life will be focused on what you love uh, the most about your work, and that's amplifying the lives of extraordinary Americans and putting your passion for storytelling to good use, which you've done, And so I'm wondering, will part of that work include continuing to amplify the voices of women in media, uh, both in the stories told and then the people telling the stories?
1: Yes, 100 percent. So while being at CNN has been a gift, you know, I only get an hour or two hours a day. And I know that sounds like a lot of time, but there's a lot of news that you have to place in that amount of time. And when it comes down to it, those segments that I enterprise or the women that I want to talk to outside of what's happening in the world that we need to cover is very small. And I would like to amplify what my favorite interviews are what I call extraordinary ordinary women, right? It's amazing to talk Mm -hmm. to celebrities, but I really admire ordinary women in extraordinary circumstances. And so I would love to somehow dive into the deep end of storytelling. I am, I am working with a production company to create what I will hope will be my part of my next dream, which is an unscripted doc series that, you know, people can binge and be inspired by on, fill in the blank. I'm not there yet streaming network where I can tell these stories of these huddles. You know, what was so hard as a journal, as a TV journalist specifically was crisscrossing the country and having these amazing conversations. And it's all on on the beautiful pages of my book, but I would love it to come alive on camera. And so that is my dream essentially to create huddle the book and to huddle the docuseries.
0: Well, let's turn to your new book. And your Mm, new book is dropping. It's called Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. And it's Mm. a blend of journalism and personal narratives examining how women have come together in a wide variety of times and places to provide each other with support, empowerment, inspiration, and strength to solve problems or enact meaningful change. And don't we need that in the world? So I'm glad that we've gotten to this point, point to really talk about what the huddle means and what inspired it. So what what got you thinking about this? And I get goosebumps thinking about Mm. your approach, which is what's happening to everyday women where they are making a change in meaningful ways. So tell us about the book and what inspired it.
1: Yes. So I in my bones believe that outside of, you know, representation and access and power, women are one another's best resource. And so I think, you know, the, my, the biggest compliment is to be called for me a woman's woman. But as I have explained, you know, I am this woman's woman. I am a, a, growing up in Atlanta, surrounded by girls, was very active, led a lot of huddles. And then all of a sudden I get into journalism where I am surrounded by a lot of men And. I don't have a huddle and I am very lonely in my 20s and in my really the first half of my my 30s and then cut to I'm at CNN, I'm covering the presidential election that was 2015, 2016, I'm crisscrossing the country, my 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 antenna are out and they're speaking to me saying, wow, you know, women are showing up um, in this race and not just because they thought the you know, glass ceiling would be shattered. But for every candidate, you can think back to how many white women voted for Trump. My point is just women were showing up in ways I had never seen in my career. And so there I was, January 2017, literally like balancing on the back of a flatbed truck embedded in the, the Trump motorcade on his inauguration day, surrounded by MAGA hats, fresh off of the grab them by the pussy you can't uh, make that revelation I I mean you just that had just happened and the man is elected and I'm standing there trying to maintain my objectivity how does one uh, do that making his way to the White House uh I, I, I tried as best as I possibly could and and but I couldn't help but have my own internal dialogue of what will these next few years look like right Mm-hmm. So that's on a Saturday, and then the very next day there I am in the middle of thousands of women at the Women's March, and beyond realizing that I'm standing in the middle of this one giant huddle, I'm thinking, "Wow, if I wasn't here covering it, like would I have a group of women who would show up with me, uh, who would stand in the porta potty lines and share a tank of gas?" And I just actually didn't think I did, and I that was really the beginning of what became American woman, which was the unofficial beginning of my journey to to find this book and find my own huddle and, and, you know, bring real intention to it. And I just want to urge other readers to do the same. And the last point I'll make is, you know, in my journey, obviously realizing, checking my privilege in the first couple of pages of this book as a white woman coming from Atlanta, you know, I may not have seen many women coming together. um, And as this Duke professor explained to me for white women, there really had been this huddle drought for basically my entire lifetime for black women in this country, huddling is in their DNA. And, and I just wanted to bring that out. And that's why I started with the Houston judges. And I just, I just feel like huddles don't always make the headlines. And I needed to write a whole book in honor of them.
0: Well, you know, you're so right when you, when you speak about the experience of women of color and black women and the huddle, because without that huddle, who knows just where and how uh, Black women would have landed within these spaces, but that huddle has meant being able to see a kind of sisterhood that's not geographically determined, that's not biologically determined, that's not determined by whether you were in this sorority or that sorority, whether you went to this college or that college, but it's a a shared sense of a, a broader collective experience. You know, something that I've been thinking about Lately, Brooke, and it it gets kind of to this sort of point of a huddle that goes way back many generations. And I've been thinking about, you know, what story does a mother tell her daughter the night before the auction? Mm. So the Mm. mother who has to prepare the five-year-old because she's going to be sold the next day and may Mm. never see her again, that's a huddle. And what do you tell her? And knowing that there's a huddle on the other side when that girl arrives, wherever it is, that there's somebody who never met the mother who is embracing her in these horrific conditions. That's a huddle. That's a huddle, right? Like that's a huddle. And so you've, what you've done is to tap into a a kind of modern day huddle of where we are. You crisscross the country for two years, researching and writing this book, revealing how huddling helps women to achieve survival. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, success in the workplace and whatnot, but part of this,
1: but it's also survival. Yes. Survival.
0: Yes. That's exactly what you're saying
1: To, to your point about the night before the auction. You know, I interviewed the two women who started Girl Trek, Vanessa and Morgan. It's a group of, it's a giant and growing group of predominantly black women who walk, which is obviously in honor of the history of, of women walking to freedom many, many years ago. And one of them made the point to me, and it's often said that, you know, yes, of course, women were all they had centuries ago in slavery, but she also, and this other black historian, Kimberly Springer said the same to me, Brooke, it is so important that you, that you emphasize that it predates slavery with black women huddling, that black women just genuinely enjoy the company of one another and it has only strengthened through the years and into the 80s and 90s and the million woman march in Philadelphia in 1997 which was this whole grassroots effort which rivaled the women's march in 2017 like black women have been at it for a long time and that is why especially as a white woman writing this story it was important for me to start with those black judges in in Texas
0: well and in fact let's build on that because I'd be curious to know then I mean you've been doing real work and and this is not new in terms of your articulation of your space right and saying I'm a white woman here in Atlanta I'm a white woman doing this but I'm mindful of what's happening around me mm. And so what inspires that? Because a lot of folks see when things are well-intentioned, but done in really clumsy kinds of ways, but it seems to me that you've really spent a lot of time figuring out how to actually do the centering of other people's stories in a way that is meaningful, uh, in a way that lifts up their humanity and also yours too. So so how have you tried to go about doing that for others who would say, I wanna do that too, Brooke, but I don't know how.
1: I honestly give a lot of credit to my mom. I think I was really raised right. I was raised to have all kinds of friends and friends who don't all look like me, which has only been reinforced through my years in journalism and realizing that I am only one person in a story and only one perspective and one needs to constantly hear from other people with other experiences and my activist rapper friend killer mike i'll never forget interviewing him after ferguson and he urged me and everyone else watching our interview like brooke you have to have friends who go to a different church or synagogue or temple who don't share the same, you know, skin color as you. And I think I just really, really, really try. I'm not always successful just because of who I am and how I was raised, like how I was brought up in my, my one unique experience, but I really try to have my eyes wide open. I think it's what's made me pretty good as a journalist. And so th- I, th- through that lens is how I approached writing this book and selecting these various huddles of women.
0: What what were amongst the huddles that surprised you most once you began the process of interviewing some of the folks that you have here? Were, were there surprises? Um, I mean, I
1: think, let's see. Let me think about that for a second. Let me think about that because... I mean, we've talked about the richness of black women huddling, but I will never forget. Like, I know I'm not supposed to pick my favorite huddle, but those Houston judges, you know, we text to this day when they were going through the power issues in Texas. I had them on Mm -hmm. my show. They were huddling through sitting there, freezing in their homes. Um, And I think I was just so I'm sitting here in my office looking at the picture of the 19 judges, you know, that they gifted me that I literally have like front and center in my office. Um, So they're just. So they're just deep in my heart for a multitude of reasons. They were the beginning of my huddle journey. Um and I think what surprised me is I really didn't know how far back the story of huddling for black women went and so I really was educated on that and I'm so grateful for them to doing that. I think the other thing that surprised me is actually there's a whole chapter about women in sports. Yes. And of course we all knew and fell in love with the, you know, US women's national team and Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino and the rest of the the women and how they just like crushed it over in France and won the won the cup, but what I didn't realize was the amplification factor among those women, both like generationally, like Abby Wambach would say, like we need to make sure we leave this team better than when we found it for the next generation of women, and that means in terms of rights, um, et cetera. But then also among the WNBA players I interviewed, and how they'll sometimes cross pollinate with the soccer players, who then might cross pollinate with, you know, the U.S. women's hockey team in a way that doesn't get covered. The in a way that they link arms and share secrets. And this is how this is what worked when we were negotiating our collective bargaining agreement. You know, it's just all these details that maybe aren't sexy, but um, this is how the sausage is made. And I, I I, just hadn't realized how those women really leaned on one another.
0: And in fact, I unpack that just a little bit more because One of the things that I think can be taken for granted is how transformative women in sports can be in terms of women in leadership as a general matter, right? When you sort of think about what Title uh, IX has meant for so many women who are actually in C-suite. I mean, part of it was going through college on scholarship, a sports scholarship or engaging in sports and just really finding their space. So did you have certain kinds of connections through that that you were able to kind of tease out? By engaging with these folks, with these women. Well, I
1: remember talking, you know, back and forth with Billie Jean King, and she pointed that out exactly. I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but it's like a huge chunk of women in C-suite offices did play some sort of collegiate sport. It's all it's 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 interconnected. Um, you know, the WNBA. I joke now that I I want to come back in my next life as a WNBA player. Like I filled in for Ellen Degeneres <laughs> the other week, and they literally brought a basketball hoop in. I love it's, that. It's not it, it's not in my future, but. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) um, but just talking to those women about it, talking to those women too, about how they linked arms and dedicated the season to Brianna Taylor and how they're just majority black league, a number of gay women who not too long ago would still be closeted and playing. And now here they are, you know. Leading national conversations, um, helping change the course of elections like in Georgia, Um, they are such leaders, but at the same time, like still fighting to not have to play European ball, you know, to make ends meet before they come back and potentially get injured and play in the WNBA and It just, it blows your mind how, you know, compared like the women in the WNBA, if you have a child and you were on the road, you would have to share a hotel room with another woman, like their rights compared to college guys in college college don't have to do (laughs) it's, it's nuts. It's like basic level. Like, can we have showers in the complex after we play our game? You know, it's. It's it's nuts but it's it's just stuff that I wanted to bring to people's attention and um I don't know hopefully well, I'm, I'll teach people a little bit.
0: I think you're I think you're doing a lot of teaching in this book from Gloria Steinem to Billie Jean King whom you've just mentioned, uh Madeline Albright, uh mm-hmm. Stacy Abrams, uh Ava DuVernay. In, in fact, let's mm. turn to Stacy Abrams because you've just talked yes. about voting, sports, the WNBA yes. and talk about yes. what what amazing work, WNBA, Brianna Taylor, and the election, right? You know, I mean, really yep. providing the spark that then, you know, guys came afterwards and the guys got a lot of credit, but it was really started by the women yep. in the WNBA. But we also know that also right in Georgia, your, you know, home place, Stacy Abrams. So what yep. was connecting with Stacy Abrams like? I mean, what uh, about a powerhouse?
1: I don't even know where to begin with her. I mean... I, I was lucky enough to meet her when she was running for, you know, governor in Georgia and she had me over to her home and we had this, you know, we had this wide ranging interview and then after remember what she showed. Do you remember what I remember? I mean, (laughs) I remember the suit I was wearing, the shoes I was wearing. I remember this, you know, Dr. Seuss books and her first edition edition collection that she had. I remember what she was. It was just, it was one of those, I'll just never forget it. And so since then she is such a, She is what I would refer to as an OG huddler. Like before huddling was a thing in mainstream, (laughs) you know, she was 29 and the deputy city attorney in Atlanta. And it was the first time she had access to power. And what did she do? She shared the wealth. She was surrounded by um, at the time, you know, we referred to them as secretaries. Mm -hmm. And she was surrounded by these secretaries who couldn't um, rise up any higher because they were they were like sort of limited by their their job title. And so she went to the city of Atlanta and she was like, y'all, this is not right. These women are brilliant. They know Georgia legislative history backwards and forwards. We need to we need to do something better for them. And so that she was able to get them training and adjust their titles and adjust their salaries. And it was just a win-win all around. And and no one ever would tell that story, but that is just who Stacey Abrams is. Cut to you know, they flipped Georgia blue for the first time since 1992. And she talks about how she gave a chunk of her fundraising wealth away to other women's organizations, other black women's organizations who were fighting the good fight along with her. She had learned how to fundraise having been the minority leader in Georgia. And that's just what you have to learn how to do. But she shared all this money with these other organizations in a way she did not need to do, which ultimately. Helped flip the state.
0: Amazing. That's Stacey Amazing. Abrams. That's Stacey Abrams. And I love okay. So the next book has to be the you know, OG <laughs> Huddlers, right? I love OG that. Huddlers.
1: <laughs> OG Huddlers Unite.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. I she love it. She is. That's perfect. Well, you know, what's also interesting, and this is this is the power of your book this research and what you're looking to do oh i just see the the stream of it the theme of it is that you know the people who start from a space of earnestness who are building mm. and lifting up other people as being transformative mm. and i think so often about if only the barriers were taken away imagine mm. what women could do because they're already doing it but they're doing it having to hurdle overcome know, some of the <laughs> obstacles hurdling instead of huddling
1: yes. totally Yes. Totally. I mean, I think for so long women were leaning in, which, which was totally appropriate at that time, but you know, in myself included leaning in so hard, you like, you know, smack your forehead and you're mm-hmm. fighting one another as you are fighting for that one or two seats at the table. And now the idea from all of these women I've been speaking with is like, Let's just build our own table. Let's just throw down our ladders, as Megan Rapinoe says, if we have experienced that success, or as I told Abby in the text, like keep the door open for those coming up behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just making sure that we subscribe to this abundance mentality ethos that when, you know, I shine, you shine. um, And I just want to inspire other women. I want to add this word, huddle to the lexicon to make sure other women know that it's a safe space. It's, you know, success Comes from huddling if you're looking at it through that lens. Um, and I just, yeah. I believe in it with every well, bone in my body.
0: You know, and in fact, you know, with Megan Rapino, what's interesting is the intersectional kind of huddling. You know, when yes. Megan Rapino takes a knee after, you know, Colin, Colin Ka- Kaepernick. Yes. Right. I mean, it's that it's yes, using the power of her force, and just as you were mentioning, in the wake of so many white women who who voted for Donald Trump, and then you see a Megan Rapinoe yep. saying, "I will yep. take a knee me," um, because yep. this is the right thing to do. So, so can you give some insight there about what you learned from Megan?
1: Well, I mean, she's extraordinary and was amazing to literally wake up early after getting a huge, huge award from Sports Illustrated. I, she still had like a little bit of like pillow crease on her face as she <laughs> dragged herself out of bed. I felt so bad, but you know, I'd been, I'd been chasing her for, for many, many months. I was essentially like the lead stalker of Megan or And she, she blessed me with her presence over breakfast and coffee. Um, but she is somebody who to me embodies intersection intersectionality. And I cannot stress this enough. Like we, as women will not have success without being intersectional. Like I'm no historian, but I know that a hundred years ago when black women and white women were fighting for the for the right to vote side by side, when push come, came to shove. The white women won those rights and the black women were abandoned. And it took 50 more years for black women to win the right to vote. And ultimately, when you think about, you know, this fast forward to the civil rights movement to feminist movement, it was Fannie Lou Hamer who said, you know, it's the slow reckoning among white women that, quote, nobody's free until everybody's free.
0: Yes. yes, Nobody's free until everybody's free. We love Fannie Lou Hamer.
1: (laughs) We love Fannie Lou Hamer. So. That's just how it is. That's well, how it should be.
0: You know, one of the things that one gets from your work and from the book uh, specifically is this, let's just bear it all. Let's just let, let's let be honest. Right. And that we can't get to that space that Fannie Lou Hamer um, aspired for us all to reach unless we're honest about who who we are where we've been and how we can mm-hmm. move forward. And listeners should know that you know with this book you did real work. You engaged with historians on this journey. This wasn't just kind yeah. of top of mind work. Yeah. Uh, but this was this was actually you know this, this level setting. This was work. This was actually really talking with people, learned people who study these things to help yeah. shape some of you know your insight. So so I, yeah. I I'm, there's another person who is a, a trailblazer that you connected with. Uh, uh, too, and that's Ava Duvernay, and uh, so right because the images uh, that we put out are important to The stories that we're able to tell, and she's a storyteller. So tell us is. a bit about that because, and, and with that, if you could maybe tell folks about what the importance is of storytelling. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? Yeah.
1: yeah first of all, not not name dropping, but she emailed me today and. Whoa! Prior to to you talking to me, that kind of made my day. So Ava DuVernay, just for for folks who are like under rocks, um, she is this filmmaker, director, black, Powerful black woman in Hollywood, where again she is a unicorn, and so I got to meet her um, because I wanted to do a story on her series. It's a series that owns uh, airs on OWN, Oprah Winfrey's network, called Queen Sugar, which is into season five and is a beautiful story of um, just black families in, in Louisiana. So I, I roll down to New Orleans where they're shooting the show, and I'm sitting on set on the Queen Sugar set, and the reason I wanted to talk to her is. Because because what she is doing in Hollywood just is, isn't really done. She is not only lifting women um, filmmakers; she's lifting a lot of women, uh, black and brown women as well, and indie filmmakers. So the deal is to like crack through the the crazy ceiling that is Hollywood. As a woman, is nearly impossible. And since she has managed to do it, she is now making sure that every single episode of Queen Sugar, into the fifth season, is all wow. directed by a woman wow. and in 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 opening the floodgates for these various women to do that sh- the stories i she would say are richer as a result of being directed by a woman or a black woman like her and that then also down the road affects stories being told out of Hollywood because those women now can go on because they have that notch on their resume that they directed queen sugar and could do what they couldn't do prior, which is go, you know, direct network TV. It's at the end of the day, all about storytelling and as much as we hope and dream, like putting women at the center of the stories. And so that not just goes for the actor, the actresses, but for those who are behind the camera. And so, Ava DuVernay. I I cannot speak higher, more highly of her. And I'll never forget the line. I I tell her, I I tell, I say this a lot, but you know, I said to her, I was sort of playing contrarian. And I said, Ava, like, why don't you just keep all the fame to yourself, all the fame and the money and just direct all the episodes yourself. And she goes, Brooke, I don't want to be at the party alone. Wow. I don't want to be at the party alone. Wow. Like metaphorically
0: and literally.
1: And so she's sharing the wealth. She's an OG (laughs) huddler.
0: An OG huddler, And you know, this gets back to a kind of sensibility about Black women. You know, when I was growing up, my my parents were living in Montreal, and I was living in Wisconsin with my, between both my maternal and paternal grandparents. And my mm-hmm. maternal grandparents were from the South, from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, there were lots of aunts and cousins around It seemed that they were always around. And I only learned later, came to understand, Brooke, that uh, these were women that were not biologically related to us. Uh, my mm. maternal grandmother was kind of leading her own underground railroad, that kind of mm. um, southern migration northward, helping yep. these women get resituated. And she, my grandmother, you know, would just tell me, "These are, you know, this is Aunt Sally, this is Aunt Bernice, and these are your cousins, right?" And of course, that destigmatizes it all. And then you just sort yeah. of think yeah. that's just family. And yeah. so that kind of O.G. huddling of like, it's all of it's, it's all of that. So so I want to talk about And thank you so much for allowing me to just pepper you with these questions. Bro. Of course. Uh, so you best know, interview, best interview. Your book also pays attention to Black Lives Matter It's kind of a mm-hmm. contemporary story. And we know that there had been so much backlash about Black Lives Matter. Uh, some people have been hostile to it, still are. And what's interesting about your work is that at a time in which people were hostile, you were leaning into this is a huddle that matters. So what was yep. it that drove you to say, no, I need to have part of this book that centers the story of women who are involved yep. with Black Lives Matter?
1: Well, obviously, as I'm sitting there working on the book, um, George Floyd is killed and we all like we'll never forget hearing him call to his dead mother at the very end as these officers' knees are on his neck. And and also sitting in that anchor chair through so many senseless killings of Black and brown bodies, I knew I needed to talk to Black Lives Matter. In fact, Alicia Garza, when I was on the phone with her, she made me realize something I hadn't even known, which was when I sat there, I think it was 2014, and she came on TV with me along with um, Patrice Cullors, one of the other co founders. She said to me, Brooke, Wow, I was so uh, she said, Brooke, you were the first woman who put Black Lives Matter on national television. And as a result of that, you know, Sonny Hostin at the time was at HLN and she was in the she was in the hallway and she ended up seeing our interview, then she put those women on HLN, which just started this whole ball rolling. And she said, you know, I've just written this book and I wanted to tell you that I've I noted that. I noted that you gave us this voice, and I've always wanted to thank you for that, which wow. Um, I came back to her because unlike civil rights movements, oftentimes with male figures at the center of the movement, what Black Lives Matter does is she and, o and Patrice talk about is how, and again, if you're listening, you know, three women co-founded Black Lives Matter, which you would be surprised how many people think it's it's men. Yep. And they said to me, Alicia said, it's about being leaderful. It's not about being leaderless. But a lot of people don't know that it's three women who founded BLM because they're not all up in everyone's faces about it. They're exactly. about the work, they're about the activism. They're about the change. And so you can always add to the circle, and it becomes more and more powerful. And we think, I think back to the summer, just living in downtown New York and seeing all of these movements and protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. And how could I not talk to these women and feature Black Lives Matter prominently in this book because their story is incredible?
0: Well, and that's just incredible, just how you've described. Um, the very earliest and how they have appreciated how the earliest mainstream uh, presentation of the movement of that movement came from you giving legitimacy and space um, from your seat. And I think it's important for folks to know, too, that when you do those kinds of brave, like those things take bravery, right? It's not always that you just get free clearance. But that you are actually making the case as to why this is important, and I think that's important for people to know. All right, um, in in your book, you're also talking about uh, mothers who are fighting for sensible gun laws too. Mm, why was that, that action. exactly? So, and and yep. that to take a pause and to continue to think about the women who were gunned down in massage parlors in Atlanta. Ugh. Um, most of them overwhelmingly, um, Asian women, Asian American women, and my heart still drops, continues to drop about that. Um, and, and it can't just be, we just move on, like it happened, right. and, and now it's done. But to me, that connects with also the power of you looking to tell the story about mothers who are in the fight for sensible yep. gun laws. So can, can you share a little bit about that too?
1: Sure. So I have been, again, just because of what I do for a living, I have been in that seat when mass shootings have occurred and I'm in the middle of a segment and the teleprompter goes blank and my executive producer gets in my ear with very little information and we stop everything and we have to pivot to covering this tragedy in real time. It is something that I have had to do too many times. I've written opinion pieces about it. These people, these survivors have become sort of odd friends of mine just through all of these experiences. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I shined a light on this community. There was a moment when I did something that hadn't been done before after, you know, one of the latest school sh- mass shootings. And I got 40 of these survivors or these families who'd been in by gun violence together in the museum in Washington, D.C. I'll never, ever, ever forget it. And there was a moment when in the front row, I see it now, Sharon Risher, the Reverend Sharon Risher, black woman lost um, several family members in Charleston. in that church was sitting next to now Congresswoman, but then, you know, uh, a, a mother, Lucy McBath, who'd lost her son, Jordan, in this loud music situation at a, yes. you know, a gas station. And the raw emotion between these two women in that interview was palpable and the way they physically leaned on one another to string words together. I'll never forget it. So that just that's something that's been in my heart for years. And so what I wanted to make sure I did was that I honored what is the largest grassroots huddle in America, which is moms demand action or moms. Mm-hmm. And Lucy McBath, who was sitting there that day in the museum is one half of what was the beginning of moms. It started with uh, Shannon Watts, who saw what happened in Sandy Hook with the little first graders being shot and killed and, and other you know teachers and the principal as well. She started a Facebook group 75 followers but ultimately it was Lucy Mcbath who reached out to Shannon and said hey in a really lovely way and you talk about intersectionality you know Lucy Mcbath African American Sh- Shannon Watts white woman she was really focusing on these school shootings and and like uh, it affecting white kids in suburban schools and Lucy gently said hey you know we need to broaden the lens of this and let's let me help you let's bring it into the faith communities let's bring Mm -hmm. it into the inner cities let's talk about gun violence on a much broader scale and that then led to this giant organization that is moms and i've been out on shooting locations you know covering the aftermath and seen these women come up to my live location wearing their mom's t-shirts it gives me goosebumps just thinking about how these women are able to work together and also men. Let me be fair too. within mm-hmm. every town for gun safety to work, to change legislation, to create more, as they would say, gun sense legislation in this, in this country so that these shootings stop happening.
0: Well, they're painful. I, I can tell you as a, from the point of view of a, of a researcher at the intersections of constitutional law and also medicine I've done town halls across the country and events at the National Press Club, and mm. it's tragic hearing from the parent who has lost a child on the front steps of a church, the kid who goes uh. out to try hearing gunshot and thinks that he can help someone and gets caught in gunfire himself, yeah. or the cases of young folks. One young woman comes to mind who lives on the south side of Chicago and uh, who tells the story about having lost, by the time she was 25, 26 years old, 28 people in her life <gasps> to gun violence. And what of, of her story, you know, one of the the aspects of it that most deeply touches me is that she said that on Facebook, while there are people who are celebrating their friends from high school and college and they're connecting with each other, that for her, it's dead space. Those people are gone. She doesn't have those people. Uh, wow. To connect with, and it's and it's powerful. And yes, there's something that needs to be done by that. And yeah. and I, I just want to ask a, a quick follow up before going to Indigenous yeah. women and who huddle for the planet, um, mm-hmm. and, and then getting to our point where we talk about silver linings. What is that like then for you as a journalist when the screen goes black and you hear the voice in your ear that there's been another mass shooting and now Brooke, you're on. How mm. how in the world do you process that? I can imagine that it's one of the most difficult things ever to just pivot mm. and you have to k- maintain your composure and all mm. of that, but can you just give us some personal insight, some of that intimacy?
1: It is one of the worst parts of my job, but also one of the most important. So there and there was a time there where it was happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And when it got to the point where, and again, this isn't about me, right? This is about these families and these lives lost. But just, covering but I it do want to hear about you. I know, yeah. I know, I know. Like covering it as a journalist, when it started happening as frequently as it did a handful of years ago, I would get angry. Like you could see it on my face. My executive producer would have to, he would tell me later, like he would dread having to to break in and tell me in my ear to politely stop what I was doing, stop the conversation I was in the middle of. And, you know, I get three little nuggets of information and I'd have to vamp. I'd have to ad lib for what could potentially be the rest of the show as we'd be getting bits and pieces of information. And I would really have to check myself Mm -hmm. because it's not on me to have an opinion. It it is on me in those very delicate moments to relay the facts and be delicate and accurate. Mm -hmm. And I would finish my show. And I would go in my office. Oftentimes I'd go in my office and my boss would say, you're getting on a plane. And I would go to that location the next day. And Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to show up vulnerably on television. If the moment calls for it, where there is a mother shrieking for her lost 16 year old in Parkland, for example, and I'm standing next to a congressman and hearing her shrieks, I'll never forget it. I just started Mm -hmm. to weep. And the congressman standing next to me started to weep seeing those teeny tiny white caskets in Newtown, Connecticut. I came home at the time I was living in Atlanta and I remember coming home, dropping to the floor in my living room, not turning any lights on and watching the sunset and just crying and crying and crying, thinking of those families and those precious little bodies who would never see the sunset again. I just, I have never become jaded. Um, I, I feel for these families
0: deeply and it is, the worst and most important part of my job. I just have to breathe in for that. I I can imagine that. I it what a challenging position because you are on camera and also behind the scenes, having to be at your best in terms of yep. investigating, getting the information, and then translating it and transferring it to your public. That's a lot. I, I feel it right now in my body, even yeah. as I'm talking to you. So yeah. so Brooke, before we get to our silver lightings part of the show, and I hope that we get another chance to do this together again. I, I hope that we get mm. a chance to do it This has been such a gift. Such a, a, gift. a fireplace someplace. Place and just with a wonderful audience in front of us, I yeah. would love that. Um, yeah. But you also pay attention in your book to indigenous women and talk about yeah. a population that is overlooked, that has yet to have its full day and recognition. And you take that pause, that huddle with them in the book, and specifically about saving our planet. Can you tell us mm-hmm. just a bit about that kind of work? and why you included it. Of course.
1: Well, it's a, a lot of the indigenous women or indigenous people in this country are the ones who are fighting to give, um, as they say, nature a voice. And so it was really important for me to include their voices in this book. And I had been, um, in, uh, gosh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho with Paulette Jordan when I was shooting American woman, when she was running for I think it was governor at the time that she's okay. since run for senator. She's lost both. I mean, it's a very red state, but to, to, to stand on her family's land, to interview her, um, you know, it was something that always stayed with me. And so I immediately called her because I knew she had. She was a prominent voice in this space, and so we had this conversation. And she was the one that used this phrase I'd never really heard before about giving nature a voice. And I was kind of like, "Well, what does that mean?" Mm-hmm. It means exactly what it sounds like: giving nature a voice. And and the way she described, you know, her huddle. This, you, you asked me about a surprise. This I didn't anticipate coming was when she was telling me about, um, you know, having a, a ceremony among various. Uh, indigenous people in her community, and you know, having her ancestors in the ceremony—her her grandmother, her great grandmother—coming to her in those moments and and telling her, you know, encouraging her to really lean into this climate space. That was, you know, we were saying, is that a is that a huddle? How how these how these women were coming to her, and so she just spoke to me about how you know, in some cases with the previous administration fighting them on protecting our land and our waterways and our animals and its sacred space. And just, I wanted to make sure that the reader realizes how hard, you know, indigenous people in this country are fighting to protect that.
0: And they're fighting to protect that for all of us, right? All That's us. For, for all of us. Well, Brooke, we've, we've reached this point of the show where we ask our guests mm. about the silver linings they see coming ahead. Mm. And when I think about uh, the work you do and I think about where some other networks are now heading, we've got mm-hmm. six major networks now assigning women, including women of color, to lead White House coverage, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, we're beginning to see some change. Clearly much more is needed for sure. Um, but tell our, our listeners about what you see as the silver lining coming ahead. And, uh, and, and I can tell you, I am so excited. I, I definitely hope to see that docu-series uh, coming to life. Fingers crossed, you, fingers oh, crossed. On both hands. So yeah. this silver lining, Brooke.
1: Can I read actually a part of my book? Because I write this chapter. Yes. Okay. Thumbs up. So I write this chapter and at the end of the chapter. I, I say a silver lining is a terrible thing to waste. And I tell this whole story um, about how I, you know, got bumped off my own show because the three primetime anchors were covering this hurricane and our primetime anchors all happened to be men. And it all happened to coincide at CNN and Warner media with this week that's called make you matter week. And so I'm literally like leading a make you matter, you know, breakfast, but I'm not really feeling like I'm mattering very much. And so I tell this whole story and how I ended up huddling with one of my women colleagues who told me to go march in my boss's office and, and, you know, speak up for myself about covering the next hurricane, which he totally was true to his word. I end up covering the hurricane and get like nominated for a Peabody. All right. So the very end of this chapter, this is, this is what I write. Um, Losing the fear of asking other women for help has changed my entire approach to ambition and friendship. I might not be able to change the forces at play in our culture that have resulted in gender disparities and lopsided power balances in the workplace, but I am able to locate my best allies for weathering this storm. I've learned firsthand how fulfilling it is to root for a female colleague, to openly and honestly express my deepest frustrations about my career and to share the secrets of my own success with someone who is struggling to find her way more than just comfort. There is power in female coworkers talking to each other. Even if it's still in a man's world we're working in the huddle is the silver lining.
0: That is brilliant. The book is brilliant. You are wonderful, um, mm. passionate, compassionate, empathetic, uh, and you have just brought some of the smartest news of the last half century uh, to bear at CNN. Brooke, uh, I am so grateful that you decided to spend some time with us oh, for gosh, our On the Issues podcast. Thank Best you, Brooke. Interview.
1: Best interviewer. like, goal. Thank you so much. It has been
0: my honor. Thank you, Brooke. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guest, Brooke Baldwin, for joining us and being part of this insightful and critical conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling and telling it like it is. With special guest tackling an important issue because it's tax time no taxation without representation, this is the kind of conversation that people are having in Washington DC and also considering important questions with regard to wealth race taxation and so much more. We'll be joined by Dorothy Brown, Mara Quint, and Demi Stratman. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe as we do that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to on the issues with Michelle Goodwin and Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring the hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates, and if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy all and Mariah Lindsay. We thank Oliver Hogg for research and digital assistance. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.